Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Less than two years ago, during the pandemic, the Washington Post created a small visual forensics team, a handful of specialist reporters analysing and verifying open source, on-the-ground videos from major news events. Off the back of that, the team started to publish reconstruction videos which piece together how complex news moments have unfolded, like the death of George Floyd and the siege on the US Capitol on the 6th of January 2021. I'm speaking today with the executive producer Nadine Ajaka, who has led the Visual Forensics team, a team which is now expanding thanks to the impact and resonance of their work. We're going to talk about the logistics of working on these complicated news stories with a remote team weighing up a time-consuming medium against a time-sensitive story, and the potential revenue model driving the strategy. All of that's coming up. Don't go anywhere. Nadine, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Would you um, share with our audience a little-known fact about you, please? A little known fact about me is I um, have a twin sister um, and we're in polar opposite fields. She's an infectious disease physician um, and we look a lot alike. So people confuse us a lot, um, even though we've chosen vastly different paths in life. <laughs> Any kind of um, switcheroos, pranks of that of that measure? Yes, when we were younger, Um she doesn't she doesn't turn up at the news desk no and i would not want to be responsible for her job either so it's probably for the best that is a cool little known fact thanks for sharing that today we're going to talk a lot about the visual forensics team at, at the post um would you start us off with kind of a definition of what we mean by visual forensics the kind of work that you do there yeah so we really specialize in conducting investigations that are primarily based on open source visuals, um, definitely not always in their entirety, and they almost always incorporate other elements. Um, but that's kind of the focus of the team. And the methodology of the investigation is to analyze visual material. And so normally what this means is, you know, when there's a big event that happens, um, I'll use the war in Ukraine, for example, where there is a lot of visuals sort of floating around on social media and open source um, kind of platforms, we will go through it and kind of see if we can verify it and then also put it together and contextualize it in some kind of broader way for our audience. Many of its big stories have done well. The one on the US Capitol is sitting on almost 4 million YouTube views. The one around the death of George Floyd is nearly at 6.5 million views. And another video about the 10 people who died at the Astro World Festival in November 2021 just hit 2 million. That latter example takes exclusively obtained user-generated content to show how one section of the audience became the epicentre of the unfolding chaos. It paired the video with animated maps of the concert side by side to give a bird's eye view of events as they took place. It used tracking software of the crowd, a crowd counting model to estimate density, and digitised reports from the firefighters and ambulance logs, all to tell the story of how a dangerously overcrowded show became fatal. The post is also going in another direction with the visual forensic work by creating a database of around 200 pieces of verified, on-the-ground footage from Ukraine dating back to the start of the war. 
The database is behind the post's paywall, and it's considered to be an asset for both general news audiences, as well as other news outlets, journalists, and human rights activists, all who do not have the same resourcing power as the post. Everything is searchable by location, date, and incident, and features the ability to filter according to what was targeted in the event, such as civilian areas, residential areas, and medical facilities. It will be continually updated as the war continues. When it comes to videos coming from Ukraine, we have really been focused on a lot on kind of the daily fire hose. Um, you know, what is the story of the day? What are the visuals coming out of it? And can we confirm something about what's happening by analyzing and verifying these videos? And so, you know, the process is at this point kind of a little bit rote, you know, geolocating, confirming the coordinates of the video, you know, verifying the timing, you know, when appropriate, we'll send visuals to weapons experts to learn about what kinds of munitions are being used. You know, this step can kind of confirm or deny a particular narrative or shed some new light on an incident. So for example, you know, the first use of cluster munitions in Kharkiv came from us watching a video and sort of sharing it for further analysis. So sort of these findings that I think um, can emerge from the video verification work that we've done. So, I mean, I, I know that the visual forensic team isn't just about verification. You've done some very high-end award-winning video production as well. So there's kind of a mixture of things that you're working on across the board. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're actually, we're kind of far from like a verification shop. This sort of stemmed from um, kind of a necessity with all of all of the visuals that were coming out of Ukraine. Um, you know, I think that we really specialize in reconstructing events, um, analyzing visuals from those events, and then pulling out some, some larger and more significant findings for our audience. Um, so for example, when the Astro World concert happened and it became very clear that something had gone very wrong and 10 people died, you know, we, um, we're able to look back on videos and photos from that night and determine where most of the victims were. And then on top of that, apply a kind of crowd counting, you know, crowd density analysis to show that this area was really, really particularly dense. And the findings of that investigation came out, you know, shortly before it was ruled that um, all the victims died of compression asphyxiation. So you know, I mean, those those are kind of like the types of investigations we really want to want to focus on, um, and that I think we have are well resourced to focus on. Mm. Of course, you did that sort of brilliant piece um, around the sixth of January, um, the the siege on the Capitol. Do you think, with all the stuff you're compiling with around the war in Ukraine, there'll be a piece down the line where you kind of reconstruct things into a high end um, produced video? We are definitely examining certain events. Um, the situation is so fluid and is moving so quickly um, that I think, you know, we're still at the point where mm -hmm. we're trying to determine what the very best target is. And, you know, as a journalist, that's not always easiest question um, is to say, like, sometimes it's the hardest question, you know, what, what sort of merits our attention? What should we turn to? What do we have evidence of? What is there potential to find evidence of? So I, I definitely won't rule that out. Um, although our focus right now is the database and getting that out. Hi there, just a quick one from me, and then we'll get back to our conversation with Nadine. Just want to let you know that our digital journalism conference news Rewired is less than two weeks away. 
don't miss your chance to network with your peers and fill your boots with workshops and panel discussions led by industry experts. We're discussing everything from first-party data strategies to the relationship between platforms and publishers and much, much more. That's taking place on the 24th of May at News UK HQ in London. Head over to newswire.com to grab your ticket before it's too late. And we'll see you there. How do you make sense of the masses of information in front of you when it comes to a complex story, be that when you went back to do the um, 6th of January story or maybe in the future when it comes to Ukraine, when it is sort of there's so many different angles to take? Can you just walk me through that workflow a little bit? Yeah, so it definitely varies from story to story. I mean, it always starts with this kind of like very base level um, kind of like, what are their outstanding questions about a certain event? Um, and can can visuals help us answer those questions? And that sometimes helps us sort of narrow our focus. It helps if there's some kind of time period, right? Um, you know, it's a very discrete event we're looking at that happened between X number of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll do kind of like a really sort of broad call of what's available Um and then just get to work on on verifying that and seeing what it shows. You know, I would like to make a point that I think sometimes OSINT is portrayed as like, oh, this is kind of like a most objective form of reporting or this is like a holy grail or some kind of answer, um, you know, in a world where um, – you know, journalistic reliance on official statements is sort of rightfully being reassessed. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the work of deciphering these visuals is almost a small part of the entire story. And so we always have to supplement with other rigorous forms of reporting, such as contacting sources and getting in touch with law enforcement and getting comment. And so, you know, it's never is never solely about what the visuals show, but it's kind of like a multifaceted effort. Sure. The timeline thing you mentioned is is super interesting. I can kind of imagine like a storyboard or like um, stick it notes on a wall or this kind of thing. Do you do, do you have any particular things that you do to help this come together, you know, be that physically or otherwise? Um, well, we don't have post-it notes on a wall, um, but we are heavily in, in Premiere Pro, which is a video editing software. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what we call our, our sinks of certain moments, which is where different forms of, where different angles of a certain event line up because they happen at a specific time, um, can be pretty, pretty intimidating to look at. Um, and my team, I'm sure could attest to that. Mm. Uh, they're pretty, pretty monstrous at the start. Does it all happen in the newsroom physically, or is any of this happening in a, in a hybrid workplace scenario? Our, our team started fully, fully remote. Um, we, we had been, you know, called, called to our homes because of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. Um, and so, and so we all just started working from home and that, that made things harder in some ways, but also easier in others. And I do feel kind of like it's, it's really clear that this work can happen from anywhere. Um, and that's the nice thing about it. Can you share some of those pros and cons with me? Um, I think the cons, I think it's, um, can be tough sometimes when, 
gathering people for editing feedback. Um, you know, it might be nice to just be in the room all together and sort of watching, watching all at once and everyone gives notes, um, you know, rather than having to sort of export a video and wait for, you know, that's sort of a time consuming process thing. You know, any, any one of us that has done like video editing knows that it's not like, takes it takes a long time for things to export it takes a long time for things to render it's never it's never really quick um you know so i think we could save some time but i also think the pros are um you know sort of being able to be really reactive respond quickly to events move decisively um you know we work with people who are all over the country all over the world and everyone kind of got used to this sort of like <laughs> remote remote style of working. And so we found a way to make it work for us. How? Can I just ask that? Like, how have you managed to solve that problem in terms of just working with people? I, I, I do see that as one of the great challenges at the moment when we're talking about the future of the newsroom, you know, collaborating in when, when we're not in a physical space. So what are your, some of the tricks that you've picked up along the way? I think we're really heavy into Slack. Um, we have like pretty well-documented workflows for Slack. Um, you know, there's this sort of, people are kind of fatigued by Zoom, but, you know, I still have like five or six Zoom meetings a day. Um, you know, I think that those things can can kind of replace in-person conversations. And in a lot of ways, they can be more intentional, which is kind of, could be a good thing, you know. Um, you're not sort of wasting wasting time. But I think that, you know, tools like Slack, tools like Dropbox, um, Dropbox Paper, you know, we have a really rigorous kind of methodology for organizing our notes documents in Dropbox Paper. And so it makes it easy for anyone to kind of jump in and sort of see where we're at. Video, as we all know, is a labor of love. It can be time consuming, not just to gather all the assets you need, but also to edit them in an engaging way. At the same time, the team has one eye on the clock, wanting to move quickly to cover these emerging stories. Take the Astroworld tragedy, for example. The team turned that story around in little less than a month. It's a difficult tug of war, covering time-sensitive stories in a time-intensive medium. Nadine tells me more about how she tackles that dilemma. Always we sort of start with a question of like, what is the best form for this story to take? And there's a number of factors that impact the answer to that question. So how competitive is the story? What exactly are the findings? Is there going to need to be a scenario in which we're showing multiple things at once? So video that's happening at the same time as audio, um, maybe multiple shots, you know, that, that we want to show at the same time. I think asking those questions can help us arrive at whether or not a video is really the best form for a story to take. Oftentimes, I think that it is, and I think it can be really powerful. And the reach that you have on site and then off site on places like YouTube really like, like for me, the audience reach like makes it always worth it to kind of pull things together in a in a cohesive like narrative video. But at the same time, it's not always the best fit for a story. So asking those questions early, um, I think, has become a key part of our process. So when does it make the most sense to opt for video? Yeah. So for us, you know. If we're telling a story in a video form, we are always going to want to have something to show for everything that we're saying. So um, there needs to be a lot of visuals that kind of speak to the story. You know, a lot of times we are piecing together um, a number of different things that happen at once and showing them all at once in like a linear video is 
it's just clearer for the audience, I think, you know, it's clearer to say here, you can see this event from three different angles happening at once. And we're going to show them to you all at once and kind of pause and talk about each scene. You know, that's harder. It's so much harder to do in text. Um, it, no it normally happens when we have just like a lot of visuals and we need to kind of lay them, lay them out and contextualize them. So, I mean, just from a strategic point of view, you know, where does this stand in terms of a strategy to increase digital subscriptions with the Washington Post? Yeah, I think that, you know, for, for example, if we make a video and it goes on YouTube and 2 million people watch it, um, I think there's this very strong chance that a large percentage of those people are not subscribers to the Washington Post. And so when we introduce them to this kind of, um, you know, rigorous accountability journalism, um, that that to me is like a, a pathway for people to become subscribers to the Washington Post. And so, you know, we always say, okay, you can watch our videos on YouTube for free, but please know that the support we get from subscriptions is what makes the work possible. And that's kind of messaging we'll frame around stories. I mean, there's truly no limit to the audience you can get on YouTube. And in a way that's very different from the site. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other thing there is 2 million views on YouTube is not insignificant from a revenue point of view if you're monetizing that. Correct. Um, but it's hard to monetize some of the, I guess, more like graphic newsier videos. But that's maybe a question for our, our ad, ad ops team, not for me. To... Oh, 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 I see. In, in case they demonetize it, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Or kind of age restrict it, which we've had some some issues with in the past. Um, but right. you're correct. I mean, I think that in, a, in an ideal world, you'd be able to monetize both YouTube and also point people towards a digital subscription. Cool. Cool. Do you as a team have targets set upon you strategically? No, um, no, we're really like, um, fortunate to have management that trusts us. I mean, I think we have sort of internal goals. We want to publish a set amount of pieces um, per month. Um, you know, these are the kinds of stories we want to pursue. This is what makes a good visual forensic story. Uh, but there's no one who's behind us saying, oh, you're under publishing or, you know, kick it up a notch or something like that. Um, yeah. Is, is there a specific quota? Because I mean, no two videos are necessarily the same in terms of how intensive they could be to produce. You're very right about that. Um, and I think there are some months where we're doing sort of faster stories and we might publish more. I look at it sort of as more like a quarterly or kind of yearly thing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that I can say we have a specific number, but I definitely can tell you that one of our goals in this expansion is to is to do more, is to increase our output. Um, that's kind of the primary goal is to do more stories than the ones that we're doing now. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does seem to be doubling down on 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 the video strategy here in order to, to to expand you know you've picked up some awards along the way but out, outside of awards what kind of makes all of this worth it to expand in this way i think anytime we can um measure impact anytime other organizations cover findings anytime they're cited in supreme court documents or played at Donald Trump's impeachment hearing, you know, that's, that's impact. Um, but, you know, I think first and foremost, um, for me, at least, um, I do pay really close attention to how many people um, consume a story, um, and how it seems to resonate with a wider public. And I'm always reading our YouTube comments. And, you know, like, I think that that's, 
that's why we do the work that we do. I hope you won't mind me mentioning on the episode, but you will be going on maternity leave. I imagine you'll be passing the baton to one of your teammates. Um, what will they be focusing on in your absence? Yeah, so I will be passing the baton um, to Elise Samuels, who's a really talented reporter on my team and kind of has been at the Post for a long time. Um, and I totally trust her so fully to kind of keep things moving forward. You know, I think her primary tasks are sort of keeping keeping the trains running. Um, and then obviously we have this hiring initiative. And so, you know, I would love for that to kind of continue on even when I'm on leave. And I think we have a good plan to make sure that nothing stalls. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're planning to come back, I, I presume then to the post once your leave is, leave is finished? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> cool. So what do you hope to come back to then um, when, you, when you're finished with your maternity leave? Yeah, I hope that we have um, at least some of these positions hired for, if not all. Um, you know, I hope that the team is finding ways to continue to um, innovate, continue to work together. You know, we're so lucky. We partner with so many amazing sections of the newsroom, you know, the investigative team, the foreign section. Um, you know, we have we have so many like talented reporters that we work with and editors all the time. And so, um, you know, I hope that we're just able to kind of take advantage um, of those relationships and um, bring more people into the fold. Well, Nadine, I, I wish you all the best um, with with everything on your personal agenda coming up. I hope you have some lovely, well-earned R&R. &R, and um, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It's been a real blast uh, to chat. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Once again, a big thanks to Nadine for chatting to me, especially because she was just about to go on maternity leave. Here's wishing her the best at this lovely time for her. I'm left thinking that video makes the most sense when there's really something dynamic or conclusive to show. Now that might seem obvious, but often words just do not do justice to all the different elements of a multifaceted, highly dynamic, highly visual news story. However, to do that consistently well, you need to be well resourced. I'd love to know what you think of today's episode. You can DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at Journalism News. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode next week, where we will talk to Scene, formerly hashtag our stories, about the next phase of the company's evolution. Solutions journalism meets wearable technology. If you're a fan of the show, do leave us a review and a rating so others can discover these conversations for themselves. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>